This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 353, Seasons at Saturn. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of University Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good. So you've got a bit of an announcement. You're going to be somewhere shortly. I am going to be down on the fine island continent of Australia from about October 2nd to October 12th. So 10 days. And I'm going to be doing a dedication talk out at Siding Springs Observatory for the new eye telescope that's going in and then doing a whole variety of events in the city of Melbourne. They have packed every moment of every day in really awesome ways. And I'm hoping that some of you out there listening will have a chance to come out and hear what's up. That is awesome. Uh, Yeah, so lots of opportunities to hang out with Pamela. If you live in the Melbourne area, this is your chance. This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Eighth Light Inc. Eighth Light is an agile software development company. They craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable. Eighth Light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better. For more information, visit them online at www.eighthlight.com. Just remember, that's www.thedigit8th l-i-g-h-t dot com drop them a note eighth light software is their craft all right so you think we're the only place that experience seasons well think again anything with a tilt enjoys the changing seasons and that includes one of the most dramatic places in the solar system saturn with its rings and collection of moons so pamela you're still digesting um, the conference that you did in Portugal, the EPSC conference. European Planetary Sciences Conference. Yeah, it, it was an amazing meeting. And it really gave me the opportunity to sit down and take in a ton of science talks, which I often, when I'm at meetings, end up bogged down in the politics of being in this business meeting, in that business meeting, in this planning session. And at EPSC this year, I, I was there as press and I was like, dang it, I'm just going to take in absolutely everything I can while I'm there. Yeah. And um, I took in Saturn. You know what? And and we're going to sort of rabbit hole for a second here, but I really enjoy these, the meetings of the astronomical societies, and this is just another one of them. And one of the reasons is because you get uh, – you get the sort of the full deeper news and and a lot of the stuff that you learn at these meetings nobody ever gets around to making a press release for and because the the attendance of the journalism journalists is fairly low you just don't get you know a lot of the stuff that you hear at these meetings just never makes it out to any other places it's a it's a very strange thing and and i quickly learned that that that's where the real news was was in these presentations by these scientists and i learned to just ignore the press releases and seek my own news 
So, um, and, and actually this is the third, really the third episode. We talked about asteroids and comets. We've talked about the, you know, the presence of water and where we're all finding it. And now we're talking about some really interesting sort of updates on what's happening at Saturn. And, and what is awesome about these meetings is quite often you get all of the mission teams at the meeting, both as their planning meeting and them presenting all of their science in really nice context. So in this case, everyone was there celebrating the fact that Cassini has been renewed for four more years and they've completed 10 years of science. 10 and years. Yeah, isn't that yeah. kind of intimidating yeah, to think I, about? Yeah, I remember being excited and reporting on Cassini arriving at Saturn. And and in those 10 years, they've got to see it going from uh, northern uh, solstice, so northern summer, through to equinox in 2009. And now we're slowly approaching the, the southern solstice. And... Over these years, they've seen storms change, colors change, uh, snow and rain on Titan. And one of the things that really got me is they've had more science papers published than gigabytes of data. Wow. So they, they've published over 3,000 papers. And they're only at half a terabyte. <laughs> um, so, uh, so the orbital period of Saturn is 29 years. Yes. So over the course of 10 years, they've pretty much been able to see one third of Saturn's orbits. They've been able to see it go through almost half of its, you know, seasonal fluctuations. Yeah. Yeah. So now with this much data, can you confirm or deny Saturn has seasons? Saturn does indeed have seasons. Wow. See, this is an update. (laughs) We know when we started Astronomy Cast, nobody was sure. Does Saturn have seasons? not well no, I, I think we, no, we, I mean, we, we felt safe saying it had seasons but i don't think anyone would have felt uh comfortable predicting even that the hexagon on the south pole was going to stay in place or that you were going to get the amazing rain and snowfall that we see on titan all of these changes it's the yeah. details that we've found that that are truly amazing yeah, so let's talk about some of the events that happen on Saturn that have changed over the duration of while Cassini's been there and, and observing. I, I think the most interesting one is the the winter hemisphere actually changes colors. And, and this is because, um, well, if you're suffering winter on Saturn, you get a double whammy. On one hand, you have the the fact that when it's winter, the pole closest to you is pointed away from the sun. So the amount of light you get per square meter is reduced because the sun isn't anywhere near straight overhead. So this is the same reason we get winter and summer here on the Earth. In the summer, the sun is close to straight overhead, lots of light per square meter. In the winter, it's down closer to the horizon. The light gets spread out as it comes in at that angle. Less light less heating winter well on saturn you have this extra problem called saturn's rings and those rings get tilted as well and act like a sun shield for whichever hemisphere is in winter and those rings can block a lot of light 
So you have this amazing cooling that goes on as you go into shadow and what light does get through is at a lower flux. And this actually allows different chemicals to build up in the atmosphere of Saturn and not get destroyed by the UV of the sun and not get destroyed by thermal heating at the same rate that they get destroyed in the summer. And that all adds up to colors that are closer to what you see on Neptune and Uranus. So how much of a like a temperature difference do you see? I do I not mean, know that detail. Not a, not a specific number, <laughs> but are you seeing like a, a really significant drop in temperatures? Because So it, what I mean, you're seeing a, is, is tens of percent change in the amount of incident yeah. light. Yeah, it's kind of amazing, right? The rings can are 10 meters thick, and yet you get this block that just covers the... That, that puts the shade down on the planet. And so it's a really dramatic. And you're not going to see that really anywhere else in the solar system. And, and so as you end up with the tilt going from sun incident on the northern hemisphere to equatorial, in which case you get very little shadow anywhere on the surface of Saturn, things start to heat up. And that temperature gradient and that change in temperature as the heat flows from one hemisphere to the other, it generated these amazing white billowy storms that we just saw race through bands in the upper atmosphere of Saturn. And it was amazing to see thermodynamics played out at such a large scale. And with Saturn, because it is rotating so fast for such a big object and, and to be entirely clear, we're not entirely sure how fast Saturn's rotating. This is one of the great stupid mysteries of the solar system. But it's rotating on order of every 10 hours. And that's pretty fast for something that Saturn's rings would just comfortably fit between Earth and Moon. And as it rotates so quickly, you get these bands that confine the weather within these different turbulent layers. And so we saw these beautiful spirally storms confined within a band billowing around as the seasons changed. Right. But we get that situation here on Earth as we get the seasons changing. We get hurricane season. We get these yes. temperature gradients and, and temperatures are moving from one hemisphere to the other. And it's, you know, it creates various storms. But in this case, the, the, the change in temperature is, is so dramatic that you get an, a more dramatic, and there's no land to stop those storms. So you get a really serious set of storms that brew up. And, and what's kind of cool is in the cases of looking at the moons where we do have the difference between land and lake, especially with Titan, you also see the weather change and you also see the seasonal storms billowing up as you go across these 30-year seasons. So Titan is tilted very much the same way Saturn is. And so it was slowly going from northern summer through equinox and now approaching southern summer. And we saw a similar, well, here it's really cold, so we're seeing what we believe was snow, cases where the surface of Titan got shinier and then went from being shiny to being dry which we think means that it snowed and then it went straight from ice sublimating out to being dry, which isn't something we see here on Earth. 
Um, then we also saw instances where it appears to have rained because the soil darkened up. You can, when you're flying over America, uh, over the farming areas uh, right after harvest, you can see the dark land where it's rained and you can see the sharp delineation between some place that rains and some place that didn't. Well, the same dark soil delineations have now also been seen on Titan. So... I mean, I guess when I imagine, you imagine the Saturnian system with the rings, the whole system is tilted at an angle. I forget the exact amount, 20-something degrees. And then all of the moons are, are, are following that path, and so they're tilted as well. And so that's how they're going to get that same tilt as, the, as, the, as Saturn goes around the, the, uh, goes around the sun. Um, and so... It's kind of amazing that you would get those that well that Titan is right at that point where the seasons would make such a big difference that you would be, get the liquid methane in this case going from snowing to raining. And and it's not just methane although that's the one that we talk about most and it is the bulk issue. But at, at Titan, you have both methane and ethane at their triple point, which means that they can both at various different places be liquid or solid or gas. And for some reason, one of the two hemispheres of Titan has significantly more lakes than the other hemisphere. And all of the lakes on Titan added up are about the size of Lake Superior here on Earth, which is really impressive when you think about Titan is significantly tinier than the Earth's moon. So you have this little tiny world that has, when you add its lakes up, lakeage similar to the size of Lake Superior. And that lake, as near as we can tell from looking at radar returns, is a mixture of ethane and methane, although majority methane. Did you just say lakeage? Yes. <laughs> All right. I, I'm not even going to look that one up. <laughs> um, so, right. Okay. So are there any other impacts of the seasons then? Well, it, it's not always the impacts that are so interesting as the things that refuse to go away. So with Saturn, I, I hinted earlier that the amazing hexagon, hexagon that it has on the Southern Hemisphere also has a massive vortex in the very center of it that's a spherical goes down several kilometers vortex through the atmosphere. Those so no, show no signs of changing with the season so far. We, we originally saw the hexagon with the Voyager missions. We're now decades later with Cassini. That hexagon isn't going away with the changing seasons. And so that just starts to lead, well, okay, why do we only have it on one hemisphere? And what's driving it? And we have models that are okay, but we can't fully get there from here yet. So and the original expectation was that this hexagon would shift hemispheres based on the season, that it would, it would wrap up when it was in the southern hemisphere and then show up in the northern hemisphere and, and go back and forth. Yeah. And, and that's not happening. Yes. That, that's... Even when the southern hemisphere is what's directly pointed at the sun as opposed to the northern hemisphere. Yes. Weird. Yes. But we, did and, a, we added that to our whole mysteries show. So. And, and then you see the things that aren't affected that much, like little tiny Enceladus that has its southern hemisphere ocean. And why is that 
only on the sem- southern hemisphere that we're seeing this cryo- uh, cryovolcanism. Uh, why don't we see that on the northern hemisphere as well? And is that going to change? And so far, it doesn't look like it's going to. And when you look at the surface features, the surface features don't indicate that there was some past great north expanse of, of cryovolcanism. And so there's lots of little enigmas. And so, again, with Enceladus, with these tiger stripes and the and the, the cryovolcanism, I guess the expectation would be that whichever hemisphere was in the light, was experiencing summer in on Enceladus, that's where the volcanoes would be happening? Well, there was actually no real anticipation that we were going to find cryovolcanism on Enceladus. That was just one of those, whoa, where did that come from moments of... How is it something that tiny ends up having that much uh, tidal heating? It just we we weren't quite prepared for that, and now we're trying to make sense of what we see, and it's kind of awesome to have puzzles. Yeah, more data needed. Yes, and and as we move into the next few years with Cassini, it is going to plunge through one of those erupting jets and capture material out of it. And so, so far we've been able to have 132 close flybys of Saturn's moons, which over 10 years doesn't seem like that many, but it's orbiting, Cassini's orbiting with an orbit not too different from the moon's orbit around Earth. So you have to think on the moon goes around once a month. And so Cassini's only completed a few over 200 orbits in those 10 years. Um, So figuring out how to do 132 close flybys across 200 orbits is some pretty amazing orbital calculating. And the fact that it's been able to sip its fuel to be able to make those little burns from time to time to get a close pass. Yeah, it's it's really amazing what they've pulled off with that spacecraft. Now, now, I mean, this is a total distraction, but Cassini's not equipped to deal with, like, it's it was never meant to collect particles of ice. Actually, from it was. Incel- really? Yeah, so, so the anticipation was that it would be collecting ring particles when it flew near the rings, it would be collecting interstellar particles, and so it actually does have particle collectors on it. Um, so what's cool is they hadn't anticipated that they'd essentially get to be sampling a lunar sea. In this case, Enceladus, because it, it has what appears to be a subsurface ocean, cryovolcanism, we're getting water samples from Enceladus without having to land there. But it won't be able to detect life. No, but it'll be able to detect molecules. Yeah. Yeah, what about the rings? Do the rings have any any change over the seasons? We haven't so much seen seasonal changes to the rings as started to get an understanding of how, um, I don't know how to say this without punning, so I'm going to go for it. The, the impact of meteors hitting the rings was more than we expected. So you actually get as a meteor or a comet, we can't identify what it was that hit the rings. As something hits the rings, it will break apart. And over the course of multiple orbits of those 
stuff in the rings. It generates ringlets and wave formations. And so you have the stuff that was impacting the rings changing the local dynamics of the rings for quite some time. And that's just really cool to watch. Now, how long is Cassini going to be orbiting for? When's it done? So we have about four more years, um, three more solid years of science, and then it starts this amazing set of plunging orbits until eventually it just plunges into the surface of Saturn. So what, 20... 2017? So Cassini is, is going to keep going until 2017. And during that final year, it's going to enter um, a more and more elliptical orbit going out to greater distances and then working to plunge its way through the rings, working to get very close to the surface. And one of the frustrating things to a lot of people is it would be kind of amazing if as it goes through these final, basically orbit 250 through death, which will be around 260 something, probably 265, could go as high as 270s. As it approaches these end of life orbits, it's going to eventually start um potentially getting damaged more and more. So they're going to turn it to have its big antenna dish in front of it as it plunges through the rings. They're going to do everything they can to keep the spacecraft going. But as it hits 293, it's going to be getting down in its orbit to 50, 60,000 miles above the surface. And it's going to get turbulent and probably going to start tumbling and with the high speeds and the tumbling that is potentially going to go on, it won't be able to send back radio data. So there's this huge, amazing potential for it to collect awesome data, but it can't send it back. And so that's that's one of those bittersweet things is... I'm sure they'll figure that out. Well, it, it's actually a, a problem of time speeds. We, we forget how long ago they had to start building Cassini. So it has one of the first ever solid state drives and it doesn't hold that much data. And its antenna is good, but it can't send back information that quickly. And if over 10 years we've only gotten back half a terabyte, in those few days it can't send back all the data we might want it to collect. It's too bad that it won't make it for a full, I guess we'll be pretty close, 14 years. I guess by the time it's done, it will almost made it halfway through Saturn's full seasonal orbit. And that, that was the goal, to keep it going as long as they could and do the last final run by the inner moons as they head towards death. So they'll go by Janus and Pan and Pandora and a a, a femethus. I'm not quite sure how to say that. All as it plunges in towards death. Um, they did everything they could to get as much science out of it as they could, but they just couldn't guarantee the spacecraft much beyond that. And with so much potential for life, we can't risk accidentally crashing Cassini onto one of these moons and potentially bringing a plague to what life might be there. And it's also too bad that there isn't something there to pick up 
where Cassini left off to watch the other half of this orbit. Because this first half, you make all of these measurements and all of these calculations and you you gather all this data and then use that to make your models. And then you want to verify those models against reality as Saturn moves through the, through the essentially goes through the next set of its seasons. And you'll see, you know, we should expect Enceladus to do this. We should expect Titan to do that. We should expect the storms on Cassini or on Saturn to do this. And you're not going to have those close-up observations to actually watch these things unfold the way we get, you know, the way, the way we gathered them in the first place. And, and this is a multifaceted problem. We, we brought up some of this last week where we have issues of we don't have the money to build the new spacecraft. We're not actively in the process of building the spacecraft. And it takes years to get out that far. And even if we did have the funding and the will, we don't have the plutonium to fuel a radiothermal generator. And out at that distance, you can't use solar power very effectively. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Pamela. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Astronomy Cast, a nonprofit resource provided by Astrosphere New Media Association, Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at astronomycast.com. You can email us at info at astronomycast.com. Tweet us at astronomycast. Like us on Facebook or circle us on Google+. We record our show live on Google+, every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, or 2000 Greenwich Mean Time. If you missed the live event, you can always catch up over at cosmoquest.org. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. residents. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend us to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Our music is provided by Travis Searle and the show is edited by Preston Gibson.